And I was looking for my mom, like, where are you? And she was upstairs in the guest room. And I was like, hey, mom, like, what's going on? And she's like, Sean, and she was crying. She's like, Sean, um, I'm leaving. And I was like, well, where are we going? Like, what, where are we going? Where are we going? And she was like, no, Sean, I'm leaving. So I started drinking and smoking weed at about 13 years old. I feel like if the devil could create something that could like ruin people, it's like, it's methamphetamine. It's like sorcery. It's like crystals that melt and they smoke. And it's just, it's awful. Um, but it, it took hold of me for, for a while. And boom, six DEA agents just kicked my door in. AR-15s or whatever they use, M4s or whatever, just drawn on us. And uh, oh man, it was the worst day of my life. God was like a genie to me at that point. Like, oh, you know what I mean? Oh, I need this, God, I need that. I didn't really have a relationship. You know how sometimes people are like, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll never do that again. It was kind of one of those type of things. Have you ever been hungry? And I'm not talking about a physical hunger for food, but a spiritual hunger to fill something inside your soul. Have you ever felt an emptiness inside your being? This void calls to you, asking you to fill it. But how have you tried to fill this emptiness? Maybe you have tried money, success, alcohol, and sex. Maybe you have tried all kinds of drugs to make you feel the way that you think you want to feel. Where has that search led you in life? Have you found the fulfillment in your quest to fill that emptiness? Has your quest led you to consequences that you never wanted to face? Sometimes the consequences of our choices are exactly what we need to face to find the truth. These are the topics that I want to examine today as we hear today's amazing life change story. I've actually never met our guest in person, and in fact, this is our first meeting. Today's episode was arranged by God. So hey, new friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Um, my name is Sean Surface. Uh, I live in Arlington, Texas. I have a beautiful wife named Christy and a 13-year-old boy named Caden. And we, we own two gyms here in the area, um, run a mentorship program for at-risk youth. And it's just, it's just been a crazy way that, uh, that we've gotten to this point, but I'm excited to share it with you. Well, Sean, thanks so much for visiting with us. Why don't you start off, and because we always, we call this a life change story. So why don't you start off at the beginning, where were you born? And uh, did you grow up there in Arlington or did you move to Arlington? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your childhood? Absolutely. Um, so I actually was born in Newport, Rhode Island. My father was in the Army War College. My dad's a naval officer. So he was stationed there going to the Army War College. And then we moved to Virginia Beach before I turned one, where he was stationed at uh, Little Creek at another Navy base. So we kind of moved around a little bit, not too much. And growing up, my dad would, you know, be home for six months, and then gone for six months, then home for six months. So it was a lot of just you know, me, my little sister. So I have a little sister also named Amanda, who is now a Navy officer also. She's a pilot. Um, don't mean to get ahead of myself, but, and uh, yeah, so we grew up in Virginia Beach and I mean, that's kind of where it was. Yeah. So what, were you close to your mom since your dad was gone a lot? I mean, did you have a close relationship with her? And it sounds to me like you had a close relationship with your sister. Yes, definitely. So my mom Yes, my mom's amazing. Uh, she was full of love, but also she had her own struggles. Um, my mom struggled. She, my mom liked to party. 
And, um, and I think that ended up kind of wearing off on me. You know, I, I believe that a lot of stuff like that is hereditary also. So um, th there was that issue. Um, don't not, you know, she loved us. She was never, she wasn't an abusive mom, she, but she just liked to party and it kind of had an effect on us. It sounds like that your dad was gone for long periods of time. So who was your role model, you know, growing up? Who did you look to, to for your, uh, you know, as, as someone that you respected? Yeah. So, and he was gone um, for a few years, you know, it was like desert storm, the whole Gulf war, then he, like Bosnia. So he was gone, but my father was, I strived. Like one of the reasons I tried to get my life together was to be like my dad. Like my dad was amazing. When he was home, he never missed us. He coached every sporting event. I mean, he poured into us. We never, there was no lack of love. Um, like my dad was an amazing father. He had to do what he had to do, you know, for this country. Um, but that also kind of stopped, you know, around seven, eight years old. So then it was pretty much smooth sailing from there with my dad. So whenever you were young, was God ever brought into the picture at all? Did you, did your mom take you to church? I mean, what was that like? So I'm glad that, that it's going to go in this direction because my, it was more of my grandmother. My grandmother was like the walking representation of Jesus. And it ended up coming back into my life as I got older. I mean, me and my, my grandmother just kind of latched me and my grandmother were very close and we would go to church. I mean, I used to, I remember delivering meals on wheels with her Monday through Friday. I mean, she, we would go, she just served. She was a retired teacher and her life was just serving for Jesus anywhere. I mean, at the church, she was the one that would show up at the hospital when people in church were, I mean, and I got to watch that and I got to watch that modeled and it had a huge impact on, on my life. Did you progress in the same town or did you guys move around as you were growing up? Yeah, so we moved around a couple of times. We moved, so my dad was from Philadelphia. Um, we were in Virginia Beach. I went to elementary school. Then we moved to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. My dad went to another war college, moved back to Virginia Beach. And then I came home from school one day and I was looking for my mom, like, where are you? And she was upstairs in the guest room. And I was like, hey, mom, like, what's going on? And she's like, Sean, and she was crying. She's like, Sean, um, I'm leaving. And I was like, well, where are we going? Like, where are we going? Where are we going? And she was like, no, Sean, I'm leaving. And uh, the trajectory of my life, like, I feel like that was a huge, um, because I never knew there was anything wrong with my family. I thought I had the perfect parents, the perfect relationship. I never saw them fight or argue. My dad would bend over backwards to make my, to make sure my mom was happy. And, but at that point, she just kind of wanted to go and be a free spirit and kind of do her own thing at the time it broke us like me my sister i never saw my dad cry until then like my dad was tough um but it broke him so at that point my dad retired from the military it was like he decided i'm not going to stay in the military now it's just me and my kids so he retired he came to the 20 years where he could get his full retirement and and we moved back to philadelphia so at 12 me my sister my dad moved to philadelphia in with his mother the one my grandmother that i was really close with and then my mom eventually followed us back up there because she wanted to be around us. Like she wasn't like an absent mother at that point. She was still in our life, but she was just kind of a free spirit kind of doing her own thing. So you mentioned you were 12 years old. That's right at the, the cusp of adolescence. So what did that do to you as, you know, what did you start thinking about yourself? A lot, we always talk about identity and here's what I thought. Did, did that change? You said that that it pushed you in a different trajectory. Tell me about what you were thinking about Sean in your, in your, in your mind. 
as I've done a lot of work on this, gone to tons of counseling sessions, put a lot of work in this, um, it, and I realized that I was kind of irrational in my feelings of what was happening at that point. Like, like I did something wrong or I could have fixed it or it had something to do with us when it that had nothing to do with us. Um, and then I kind of had held major resentments against my mom. I never let it affect our relationship because I love my mom that much. But inside of me, I held major resentments against her because of it, especially for hurting my dad. Like I, I just because my dad would have done anything for her. And he used to, he would come home from the military and just get our family back together and get everything good. And, you know, and, but so it just kind of built resentments up inside of me. And as I got older, it affected relationships with me and women because I was always worried that they were going to leave or that they were going to cheat or that like, I wasn't good enough that they, so, and it, it took a lot of work to be able to figure out and make that correlation between those two things that it had to do with my mom leaving at a young age. So whenever you got into junior high and high school and you're kind of, you're almost a, have a single parent and you've got your grandmother that you've been raised as you're going into that. So as you started going into adolescence, being a teenager, did you get into any bad stuff or were you a rule follower? What was your, what were you like then? Oh no. So we get to, so we moved to Pennsylvania, right? I'm now 13 and my mom about a year later comes up there. So when we first move up there, my dad gets this job as a, NJR uh, ROTC instructor in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and 20 minutes away from where we lived with teaching hours. So my dad would have to leave at about 430 in the morning and not get home until about seven or eight at night. So I just had total freedom. Um, I was at an age where, you know, the whole divorce thing had kind of messed with me. I don't like to blame that as an excuse, but I kind of started to just hang out with kids. I mean, at 13 years old, I, I started hanging out with kids, riding our bikes, going to the woods, smoking weed, um, hang, going up to like the 7-Eleven and asking some like homeless guy to buy us 40 ounce beers and hanging out in the woods. So I started drinking and smoking weed at about 13 years old. I mean, my sister at five years younger than me was probably the more mature uh, child in the household. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of always been like that. But I was still able at that point when I lived in Virginia Beach, soccer was like my life. I played travel select soccer um, since I could walk. And uh, and I was I mean, not to sound like I'm bragging, but I was a pretty good athlete, um, even had some scholarship offers that we'll get to down the road, even through this partying that I was doing in high school. I let it eventually start to affect my performance, you know, like I wasn't training in the offseason like I was supposed to when I was. Um, but, but I still, it still kept me at a high level. I was still, you know, first team, all league, you know, sophomore, junior year. Um, I started to get some scholarship looks my senior year, but what happened was I ended up getting my senior year after I had some talks with some schools about scholarships, I ended up getting arrested with, um, some, with a decent amount of marijuana and getting kicked off the team and losing all those scholarship offers. Mm. So it, it definitely ended up catching up with me. So how old were you whenever you got arrested? 17, but I was tried as a minor and it ended up coming off of my record. Okay. And then ended up going to like a division two school and not even like I played intramural soccer, played some like, and played some like indoor soccer, but I didn't play for real. So my first year of going to, I went to Bloomsburg university, which is like a smaller school, a state school. And the first year I ended up pledging a fraternity, which was probably one of the worst things that I could have done in college, especially because the one that I pledged was really just a bunch of guys in that school that did and sold drugs. So that's the point where I started using cocaine, right? So I'm, I'm 
20, 19 years old. And I've always been the type of person, like even when with just the weed that any drugs that I was using, I sold it. And, and I, it wasn't really necessarily for the money. It was more for like to be able to afford the drugs. And then also I realized down the road that I kind of liked the way selling drugs made me feel. It kind of filled like a void inside of me. It made me feel like the man. It made me feel important. It was almost like an insecurity that it kind of like helped me get around. So was it difficult with your classes? How were your grades during, during that time? So I, I think I passed my first semester. And from then on, I, I failed everything. Within a year and a half, I was uh, failed out of college living on the couch at the frat house, just selling drugs and not even going to school. Wow. Um, a couple of my brothers from the fraternity were looking to get some weed. So I was like, well, I have a connect down in Philly. We could drive down there and I can go get us some. So it was me um, and my three black friends, um, three African-American buddies. And we, so we drove down to Philadelphia. We were driving back. I was actually, they had me drive the car. The car overheated and blew up. So we're on the side of the highway on our way back from Philadelphia. A state trooper pulls up, you know, pulls us all out of the car and starts pulling us one by one, you know, to talk to us. I was the last one that he talked to. He comes up to me and says, okay, so I just want to let you know that this is what happened. You had no idea what was going on. They used you to drive down to Philadelphia. And you, like I'm telling you right now, you did not know what they were doing. And I was like, okay, okay. I knew nothing. And he took me home and dropped me off. Wow. Um, I didn't realize it until years later what actually happened there. Um, so he drops me off back at the frat house. And immediately I call my mom and say, my mom's in Texas. So when, when I, about the time that I went to college, my mom and my little sister moved to Texas. Okay. Um, my dad got remarried. I mean, everyone's on good standings at that point, but so I call my mom from college and say, mom, um, this just happened. And I think that when they get to the police station, they're going to tell that it was me that had to connect and did everything. And I think they're going to come get me. Mom, can I come live with you? Like, can I get out of here? So she says, yes, she buys me a Greyhound bus ticket because she wasn't going to fly me down there. So after like a five day bus trip, I'm now in Texas with my mom. So I got a job at a little bar waiting tables. It didn't take me but the first weekend to find people that were doing drugs again, because if you don't, you can change your location all you want, but if you don't change what's going on up here, we're going to attract the same things, right? So about a month into that, my mom's like, no, this is not what I moved you down here for. So she was like, I think you should join the military. And I said, you know what? I'm all for it. Let's go. Uh, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Uh, literally within like three weeks, I was shipped off to um, Camp Pendleton or MCRD San Diego, where you go to boot camp out there if you're a Marine, finished boot camp as a squad leader. Then I went to AIT or Marine Combat Training, MCT, finished Marine Combat Training, and then got to come home on leave. Came home on leave and went to a party and did drugs, went back to report and failed a drug test and I fought it. I tried to stay in, but I ended up getting discharged from the military with the other than honorable discharge. They called it failure to adapt to military life. So it didn't like stick on my, luckily it didn't like show up on like a record or anything, but that's one of my biggest regrets in life because mm -hmm. I was a good Marine. Like it was going to be something that I was really thrived at and I just messed it up. So like, if you look at the track record already and there's still more, but I've messed a lot of things up behind drugs and alcohol pretty much my whole life.
So would you classify yourself as an addict uh, during that time? Or was that one of those things? Because you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, if you had them, you sold them. So uh, would you say that you were an addict or not? Absolutely. Really? Uh, And I would still to this day say that I'm an addict, that I'm an addict in recovery and working on. But yes, absolutely. So what did you do after that? I mean, that must have been a blow to your ego, a blow to you, uh, you know, uh, emotionally. So how did that, where did you go from there? So then my mom, uh, for a living, sold car warranties to use car dealerships. And she was like, Sean, I think, um, you know, I know a bunch of car dealers. If you want to, you know, I could get you in the door selling cars. And I was like, well, I'll try it. Like, I'll try that. So literally, she took me to this dealership. She got me a job there. She gave me enough money to be able to get a, it was the in-town suites. So it was like a hotel type, like where you could live there for like weeks at a time. She got me two weeks in the in-town suites that was directly across the street from the car dealership. And I started selling cars. And literally, I think the first month of selling cars, I was, it was like a March. It was like tax season. And I was making like seven, $8,000. Like, I mean, not a ton of money, but fresh off, you know, I've never had income like that before. So I was able to get myself a little apartment, buy myself a little motorcycle to get around on. Um, and then that was the next step. So how long did you work for the car dealership? So this is when it starts to get funny. So I'm selling cars for a few months, probably four or five months and and actually doing pretty well. And then I meet who was eventually becomes my wife and my son's mother. We meet at a like a little club and we, you know, we start dating and she tells me that she's like, I just want to let you know that I'm on the run from the police. And I was like, Oh, for, for what? And she was like selling drugs and she's five foot tall hundred pounds. Like, I'm like, what? I really, I was like, what type of drugs? Like, you're not selling drugs. And she goes, no, I I've sold drugs since I was 13 years old. And I was like, wow. And we're 22 at the time, her and me. And she's, and I was like, what type of drugs? And she's like methamphetamine. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah. And, and so literally she moved in with me into my apartment the first week we met. And I remember the first time we were at my house and she pulls out like a bag of meth and she's like, you have you done you done this and i hadn't and i was like yeah of course like yeah yeah and i had never done it before and i remember getting high that first time and literally like it was it was i was hooked from the first time i ever tried it and it kind of took over for it literally it had me i lost a lot of weight and i was like literally hallucinating making stuff up in my mind that was going on in my life like with her i would just um it took control of me in a I feel like if the devil could create something that could like ruin people, it's like, it's methamphetamine. It's like sorcery. It's like crystals that melt and they smoke and it's just, it's awful. Um, but it, it took hold of me for, for a while. Did you stay working for the car dealership during this time or where were you getting no. your money? She, I started working with her selling drugs. Oh, so okay. I, and, cause she was on the run and I didn't want her meeting all these people. So I would start going on my motorcycle, making the runs to meet people. Like I would go out and meet people and then, and she would just be able to stay safe at the house. I thought I was being like, like doing something, you know, look at me, I'm high and mighty. I'm keeping her safe. Um, but. So where did that lead you next then? I mean, you're, so you're, you, I mean, you're doing that for a living. You're not working for the car dealership anymore. Did you try to find any kind of employment or did eventually uh, what, 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 what stopped your path in that, in that so direction? With her, with, with her, I said, I, I mean, earlier I was talking about like, I never really made money with, she was absolutely making money. So we didn't need to, we were making enough money doing that, that we were saving money, paying all of our bills. Like she was 
pretty good at what she did. She was very safe. She sold everything for max, a max amount that she could get out of it. And she only like dealt with a certain amount of people. Um, then what happens is about six months to a year into that, um, I'm like, I really, am, I love this girl. And I'm like, hey, why don't we try to make like, let's make this serious. Why don't we get your legal stuff situated so we don't always have to be like hiding and running from the police. And and she was like, no, they'll, they'll arrest me. I'll go to jail. And I was like, why don't we just call and find out what the next steps would be? Maybe if we get a lawyer, we can do a walkthrough and try to figure out how to get your probation reinstated. And um, so what happens at that point is she calls the probation officer. They're like, yeah, just come on in. We'll just get your paperwork restarted. You'll be, you'll be good to go. And we fell for it. And uh, so I took her into the probation department and, you know, she went in and she called me and she goes, Sean, they're taking me to jail or to prison. And um, and it, that was hard for me because I felt guilty for this. Um, I had proposed to her to get married and said, look, I'm going to wait for you, whatever we got to do when you I don't know how long you got to be, but I'm going to be here waiting for you. And I'll be here for you the whole time because I felt really guilty for pushing her into that although it was the right thing to do anyway, to get her life going in the right direction. But so at that point, she gets sentenced to this program called Safe Peace, Substance Abuse Felony Program. It's about a nine month program with a three month aftercare thing. So it's she's gonna be gone for a whole year. At that point, I take her little smart, I basically get handed drug dealer in a box, all of her connections, all of her drugs, all of the, the um, all of the customers, and, I, and I'm, it's just basically handed to me now to take over this operation. I was no longer smart or safe about it. And I blow this operation up into something bigger than, than it was. When I mean blow it up, I mean made it too oh, large. Oh, you made scale. it big. Okay, you made it. Blow it up. Yeah, no, I'm not sorry. Not blow it up, like ruin it. I mean, blow it up like. Successful. Bigger. Yeah. yeah. But yes, that's what happened. So then after that year, she's about to come home. Uh, from prison. And the whole time she was in prison, I'd go visit her every Saturday. I would take her mom. It was about a three hour drive and I'm lying to her. Oh, I'm not, I'm clean. I'm clean. Like I'm just completely lying to her. Like I hadn't slept in three days and I'm like, yeah, I'm clean. Like she knew and she knew, and we still talk about it to this day. She knew that I was, that I wasn't, but I thought that I was protecting her by lying about, cause I wanted her to get it together. Like I really wanted her to because I felt like, oh, by the time she comes home, I'll be done and then we'll be back able to fix everything. So what was going so, on in her mind during that time? Was she was she getting healthy? I mean, I know she, you know, whenever you're in jail, you're you're forced not to not to do drugs or whatever. But I mean, where was she in her mind? Did she realize that there was a problem and that she needed to turn her life around or or was she still uh, just waiting to get out and start it all up again? I think she was really trying to make the changes to get her life together. A hundred percent. She was taking her recovery, you know, seriously. And, you know, she, she tell she couldn't really just sit around and stress over what I was doing because there's nothing she could do about it. Pardon me at that, at that point. So when she finally does, or right before she's about to get out, I go and I get a good job at a place called think cash and I'm doing collections. And they actually gave us like a percentage of what we collected. And I was making good money again. So, and I had, I got good insurance and everything. So I was like ready for her to come home. Good job, good insurance. Like I'm prepared, still dibbling and dabbling with using, but not really selling on that level. Still selling because I always, if I had some, I was going to sell it because that's kind of how I could afford to do it. But it wasn't like I was doing it for an income at that point. It was doing, selling it just to have enough to use because I stopped selling the big stuff because I wanted to, you know, she was coming home. So at that point, she comes home and we're together for, for a few months. And 
she and she gets pregnant with our first kid or with our only kid. And I, you know, the right thing to do in my mind, the way I was raised and, you know, is okay. I'm going to marry you. Like it's, you know, I asked her to marry me. And so we get married, you know, now she has my insurance. We have good insurance. We have our kid. And after we have our, after Caden is born, my son, Caden, we both relapse and she ends up going back to prison because she was on parole. So when Caden is like a couple months old, Mallory relapses or fails a drug test for parole and she gets sent back to prison. My son at this point, being a couple months old, is living with her mom and my mom because we, I just, I was an addict and I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And it's, I'm not trying to justify this. It's, I would see him every day. I would, I was going over there every day, but my addiction was my priority at that point. And, uh, and it's something that I regret very strongly to this day. Um, but around that point, right then I met a guy who was another, a large scale connection or drug dealer. And I started it, saying it right now is so irrational, but I started selling again. Um, she's back in prison and I start selling large scale again. Um, with my son being, I, it's such a, it's such a regret and it sounds so horrible to say, but I put selling drugs over my son for the first, you know, few months of his life. I'd say when my son was about six months old, um, I go over to my connect's house to go re up and get some more products and I get pulled over by a DEA agent. Okay. There's a DEA agent and four cop cars pull me over and they ransack my truck and they can't, they're not able to find anything. Cause I had like a I had like a compartment built into my truck um, and I'm thinking to myself, Oh, I got away. You know, well, they bring a dog and that dog was not, they, that dog clawed at that compartment until they dug it open with a crowbar and they found the drugs. And here was another thank you God moment. They actually gave me a card, a business card of this female DEA agent. And they said, call this number. If you call this lady, we'll let you go. And I was like, I'll call her. Heck yeah. Give me that card. I'll call her sweet. I'll call her tomorrow. And they're like, okay, make sure you call that number. So they actually took a picture of me, the drugs, my driver's license in front of my truck and gave me the card. And they said, get the heck out of here. So I was like, what? I said, oh my God, I'm literally driving home. And I'm like, thank you, God. I take the card and I throw it out the window. Huge mistake. I take the card, I throw it out the window and I drive home. From that day, I did not sell any more drugs. From that day on, I was done. I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe I just got away with this. You know, I believed in God, but I didn't, at that point, I didn't have the relationship. God was like a genie to me at that point. Like, oh, you know what I mean? Oh, I need this, God. I need that. I didn't really have a relationship. Um, I definitely believed in God and I believed in Jesus. And as I look back, I can see all the times that he was there with me, keeping me safe and protecting me through a lot of things that I've been through. But I wouldn't say yet that I had a full relationship. That was more of a just like, you know how sometimes people are like, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll never do that again. It was kind of one of those type of things. Okay. Like, again, I'm thinking God's like, oh my gosh, thank you, God. Fast forward three months from now, and I now kick him butt with my son. He's actually back living with me. Um, I got an apartment that was directly next door to Mallory's mom so that we could kind of do it together. And one morning, I'll never forget, uh, one morning, me and Caden, my son, are laying on the floor, and he's just rolling around. We're playing. He is about nine or 10 months old. I could be off by a few months, but somewhere around there. And 
and boom, six DEA agents just kick my door in AR 15s or whatever they use M fours or whatever, just drawn on us. And, uh, Oh man, it was the worst day of my life. And I had always had this feeling like wondering how could I have gotten away with that? Like, did I really get away with this or what was going on? Um, they just ransack my house. I mean, they take everything out of every drawer everywhere. They're just throwing it on the floor. They're searching every nook and cranny of that house. And like I said, I stopped at that point. So there was nothing, no drugs, no money, nothing. I did have a little Glock pistol in the kitchen drawer that I was legally allowed to have. Cause at this point I was not a felon. So, so they, they find that they try to charge me with it, but it ends up getting dropped down the road. Um, and that night they, so Caden's grandmother comes over and gets Caden and they take me to the Fort Worth jail. And I spend the night in jail where the next morning they actually let me out on a, it's called a PR bond, a personal reconnaissance. Basically I just seen a signature saying I'm not going anywhere. And the reason they allowed me to do that is because they wanted me to get my affairs in order with my son. Uh -huh. So they were actually pretty like lenient. And I had no criminal history because remember that that weed arrest at 17 got dropped. So I had no criminal history. So they knew my family. I have great family. Like my family here is known to like the judge actually know, you know, went to school with my family. So they knew I wasn't going to run away. Um, and then that was the start of like um, the legal process that. I have a question. So yeah. what was the point of the. DEA agents giving you the card to call this whoever. Yeah, I mean, what would have happened if you had called this person? I mean, what was their plan? Were they trying to reach someone higher up in the drug? You know, I mean, were they going to, you know, give you a plea deal? I mean, where you say, hey, yeah, I'll tell on someone if, you know, I mean, is that what they were doing? I mean, 100%. They okay. wanted me to work for them. Okay. And if I would have done that, I still have mixed feelings about it. Um, I'm kind of thankful that I didn't go that route because I wouldn't want to have to like worry, you know, the cartels are where all those drugs are coming from. And though I wasn't directly getting it from the cartels, if I would have told on the guy ahead of me who told on the cartels, then my family's at risk. And those guys are not friendly, nice people. So um, I would have gotten out of trouble, but at the same time, I would have had to live the rest of my life worried about, you know, who was coming after me or my family or, you know what I mean? So I think that I ended up doing my own time. I ended up getting no sentence reduction for helping the authorities at all. And, and people have different opinions on that. I, I don't know, you know, what would have been the best route, but that's the route I took. So at that point I'm out on that pretrial release and I'm waiting to get sentenced. Um, and my life is just, I got a job, you know, and I'm just me and my son are, I'm just trying to soak in as much as I can because the lawyer's telling me like, I'm thinking to myself, come on, God, if you'll just give me probation, if you'll just give me probation, God, like I'm trying to use him as a genie again. Right. And this is where I really actually started to form a relationship with him rather than just because um, tr I'm trying to use him as a genie right now. I'm like, God, just come on. And I'm in my Bible and I'm actually learning about how 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 it all works. And I think when I went into court and I pled guilty which I wasn't prepared for. I thought I was going to be able to stay out of jail until sentencing. So it goes, once you plead guilty, then you get to, then the next step is how long is sentencing how long you're going to do. So I thought I got to stay out for the whole process. Well, the day I went to court and pled guilty, they detained me that day. And so now I'm put into a jail unit where I'm just awaiting sentencing. Then I start really diving into my relationship with God, just trying to, but again, trying to use him. I'm still at this point can be fully honest. I'm trying to use God like, 
please just give me a light sentence. Please just give me a light sentence. And the best thing that God could have ever done was said no to that, which he did. Um, and I was initially, well, my, this is makes it even worse. My PSI, my pre-sentence investigation came back that they were recommending I get 19 years. Luckily, they didn't give me all that. When I went to sentencing, I was actually sentenced my first time to 13 and a half years. So my first time ever in trouble, and I'm sentenced to 13 and a half years in federal prison. Wow. That's a lot. So what did your wife, I mean, what were the conversations with her? Um, was she, you know, shocked at all of this? I mean, was she angry at you? I mean, what, uh, what was the conversations like with her and how long did all this take? Yeah, good question. So, and I forgot to mention, she got out of prison. Remember, she went back to prison yeah. one week before that day I pled guilty and got detained. So we got one week together. Um, and then she actually felt a lot of guilt um, because, you know, she feels, she felt like she got me into that life. And and so she felt a lot of shame behind that, that I've had to like, you know, tell her all the time that like, this is not your fault. You know what I mean? Um so I ended up getting to prison, my first actual prison, which is Oakdale, Louisiana. And this was when I really, when, when I really got it with God, like the relationship, I got to prison. I said, you know what? I got two choices now. I can say, man, that didn't work with God. He, I tried to use him. It didn't work. Like I'm done with that. But, but one thing that was really weird is I had never had a peace in my life like I did that whole time I was trying to use God, like I was trying to use him, but there was this peace inside of me through the whole sentencing thing. And, and I had never felt that before. And, and I really felt like it was him. So I said, you know what, even though I feel like he didn't necessarily give me what I was begging for, I've never felt this peace before. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to continue in this relationship with God and I'm going to go all in on this, on this God relationship, you know? So, Sean, we are running out of time for this episode, and I know that you have more of your story to tell on the next episode. However, I want to give you the opportunity to let the listeners know how to find out about your mentorship program for at-risk youth. And if the listeners want to reach out to you, how can they do that? The website is second with a two, secondchancementors.com. Dot org. Um, we keep up to date with what we're going on. And if people are, you know, willing to, you know, pour into our cause, there's, you can do it through there. So that's really cool. And then my name is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, last name Surface, S-E-R-F-A-S-S. I know it's strange. Um, so Facebook or Instagram is at Sean, the number two, second chance. Um, we do a lot of stuff on Instagram. And thank you for allowing me to share that because connecting with people is really special to me. And I love getting, getting what we're doing out. Okay, Sean, last question. If someone is listening to this podcast today and they feel empty inside, maybe they have tried to fill that emptiness with drugs, alcohol, or sex, or whatever the enemy has promised them would fill that void. What have you found to fill that emptiness? I love that. Um, I'd say the biggest thing is, and I don't get me wrong, I still struggle with this. So I'm not perfect, but he's taken a lot of it from me and I'm continuing to pour into it. The more I study his word, especially, and the more I you know, do Bible studies and I'm in community and I'm in church, um, the more I build my faith, the less I'm a people pleaser or the less I need people for uh, to, 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 to tell me who I am, because now I realize that who I am comes from God. Um, in my whole life, the reason I got into drugs and the selling drugs was because I was so empty and I had this huge hole inside of me that I was trying to fill with other people's opinions of me. 
So once I realized that, you know what, God made me perfect for how he wants me and what he wants me to do, that hole filled up and I didn't need to impress everybody as much. I'm not perfect yet. I still struggle with it. I still like people to like me and, and I still let that kind of consume me sometimes, but I'm way better than I was. Thanks, Sean, for sharing the first part of your story with us. In the next episode, Sean will tell us about his years in federal prison and how God is using him today despite his past. Hey, if you are listening today and you feel an emptiness inside of you, maybe you have tried to fill that void using the things that the enemy promises will fulfill your life. He is a liar and his path leads to destruction. However, God is waiting ever so patiently for you to surrender to Him. God's path leads to life and peace. God loves you and He can change your life. However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.